you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 77. We're continuing our study through Psalms uh, this summer. We're spending some time here in the Psalms. We're going to read Psalm 77 in just a moment. One of the things that I love about God's Word, and the Psalms are are such a crystal clear place that this happens, is when one place in God's word explains another place in God's word. When one place in God's word gives you a how-to, gives you a clinic or a tutorial on other parts, how to apply other parts of scripture. So, for example, James chapter one says, count it all joy when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Philippians 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Matthew 6 says, seek first the kingdom of God. Hebrews 12, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 10, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. And the Psalms give you hundreds of examples as to how to do that. How do you seek first the kingdom? We've got hundreds of Psalms that open up that world to us? How do you look to Jesus? How do you count it all joy? How do you ascribe glory to the Lord's name? How do you hold fast to the hope without wavering? The Psalms fill up our vocabulary bank with ways to do that, examples of how to do that. You think of a verse that may be very familiar to many of us. Cast all your burdens your cares, your anxieties. Cast all your burdens on the Lord knowing that he cares for you. And you ask the question, how do I do that? And Psalm 77 gives us an answer. It teaches us. It is a tutorial on how to cast our anxieties on the Lord knowing that he cares for us. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 77, verse one. I cry aloud to God, aloud, to God and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I I think of God, I groan, I meditate, my spirit becomes weak. You've kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled and cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. At night I remember my music, I meditate in my heart and my spirit ponders. And this is what he's pondering. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? So I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the Lord's works, yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. God, your way is holy. What God is great like God. You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, God. The water saw you. It trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here's a challenge that I've been noticing more recently 
in efforts to share the gospel and cultivate spiritual conversations with people who don't believe in Christ or don't follow Christ. So conversations with unbelievers. And, and this is confirmed even in conversations not only here in Birmingham, but a couple weeks ago I was in Dallas just talking with Uber drivers here and there. And, and it bore out the same thing, that they so often know the message so they can anticipate, okay, yeah, Jesus died, know where you're going, and then he rose again, know where you're going, and then you have to believe in him, you have eternal life, know where you're going. They can anticipate all of that, maybe even self-identify as Christians, but when, when you hear them talk, when you hear people talk about God, it's, it's not super obvious, it's not necessarily obvious that Jesus is actually real, <laughs> that he's actually alive now that he's actually available, that he's ruling and reigning in heaven over his people, over his kingdom, that he's listening to his people, that he's acting, that he's restoring things, he's moving stuff around, that he's actually alive. Let me ask you the question as we get into this word together. How real is your Christianity? Do you actually interact with the living God? Is that a reality, right? When you talk about him, first of all, do we talk about him? When you talk about him, does it sound like we're talking about a real friend? Someone who's near to us. We're talking about a real king, not like King Midas or some mythological king. We're talking about a real king who's ruling and reigning. Or does Christian experience, does Christianity sound like, you know, like you're just describing some, some spiritual exercise program and it's done me good. It's yielded results in my life. Does it sound like that or does it sound like this is a real person, you have got to know him, he will change everything about your life. Is it that real? I just finished a biography of uh, the late professor of uh, philosophy at University of Southern California, his name is Dallas Willard, died a few years ago. He had a tremendously painful childhood, lost his mom through a tragic accident when he was two years old. So much so his dad carried young Dallas up to the open coffin and he tried to climb in. Incredible suffering. And then his dad tried to marry another woman so that he could have a mom and, and she hated his guts and she told him so. And she eventually kicked him out of the house while he was still a boy and he had to go off and live and be raised by his brother and his, his newlywed sister-in-law incredible hardship throughout his life, but as a teenager, he had, a, he had a lot of curiosity, he had an inquisitive mind, a love for nature, he had a love for learning, he had a hungry mind, so by the time he graduated from high school, he had read every book in his high school library. His favorite book was Plato's Republic, and so he would go out and work in the fields, in the farm, and he would carry with him at all times Plato's Republic. He had a hungry mind to learn things, and God found young Dallas Willard and totally changed his life and gave him joy that was so contagious that anybody who got around him had to comment. People commented that they said, I had a conversation with this man one time in a restaurant 20 years ago. His joy was so contagious, so infectious. His last words breathed out when he was dying of cancer. He looked into heaven and he said, thank you. Incredible joy in Jesus. And as, as a professor for 46 years at USC, professor of philosophy. He was a magnet for students who wanted to come up after class and ask him more about his perspectives because he wasn't lecturing on 
evangelism. He wasn't evangelizing in the midst of his lectures, but kids wanted to come up and find out more about his thoughts. And, and so another professor at USC tells of a conversation with a graduate philosophy student who came in to his office and he said this. This is J.P. Moreland who's speaking. J.P. Moreland is a distinguished professor of philosophy today at the Talbot School of Theology. Do you think Jesus can walk up to you? The student asked me. So I asked the student, what do you mean by that? And he said, he came from Dallas's office and he told me about Jesus. And he said, now when you pray, Jesus will walk right up to you and he will listen to you. I met that student 20 years later at a philosophy conference and he was still talking to Jesus. Now who talks like that? Jesus can walk up to you. It's a person that truly believes that invisible things like the Trinity and the kingdom are actually real. Again, how real is your Christianity? Do you believe in a God who hears your cries, really is in attendance when you call to him? When you cast your burdens, he's actually there. You're not talking to the walls, he's there. The things I love about the Psalms, this is in your notes, the Psalms are truth colliding with human experience. It's a, it's a journal, this is real life playing out. You get to eavesdrop on someone's pain, someone's joy in God, you're listening in. Ear to the wall, and Psalm 77 is a picture in that way of the Christian life. This psalm speaks, I would suggest to you, this psalm speaks to the nature of our relationship with God, and here's how it goes. Number one, we get to be weak. We get to be weak. Look at verse one again. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I think of God. I groan. I meditate. My spirit becomes weak. Again, this is a psalm of lament. Lament is the dominant genre of psalms. There are more psalms of lament, more cries of anguish per square inch than any other type of psalm in this book. These are believers running to God for strength they don't have. Running to God because I'm weak, I'm over my head, I need help, I need power that I don't have. You see verse two, his hand is stretched out all night. I don't know what cartoons kids watch these days. I know which ones I watched and my kids even watched them so I don't know if they're still around. Tom and Jerry is just a classic, right? Every, if you haven't seen Tom and Jerry, I don't know what to say. But, but I used to watch Tom and Jerry, I just loved just good old-fashioned physical comedy, right? Somebody's being pushed down the stairs, stuff you're never supposed to do in your actual house, but just stuff that's hugely funny because the, the, the mouse and the cat are always after each other. And so one will just stick his foot in the door to try to get in, and the other one will smash it with a hammer. And what happens when he smashes the toe with a hammer? It just throbs violently, right? Just crazy, unrealistic, pulsing, and colors changing, and it's getting big and getting small. Well, the first time I ever smashed my thumb with a hammer, I realized it actually is real. Like, that really happened. And I, I remember, for some reason, so when I went to bed that night, I, I remember feeling like it, it didn't hurt as bad if I held my thumb up like this. So I'm lying down and my thumb is up and it just seemed easier if I locked my elbow. So my thumb is just straight up and it just didn't seem to pulse or throb quite as much if I did that. You're thinking, oh, that's cute. I was in my 30s when that happened and, and there's a window on my side of the room and so the moonlight's coming in. I thought my wife was asleep, but apparently she wasn't. She looks over and she's like, what on earth are you doing? 
She just sees me sort of thumbs up to Jesus, right? Just <laughs> laying down, thumb aloft, right? But uh, one, I didn't know that she was looking or would notice, but the point is, I didn't care. <laughs> Whatever brings relief. I know this looks weird, but if it helps me to maybe get some sleep eventually, then I'm gonna do this. I'm, I don't care what it looks like. Well, this psalmist, he's like, my arms are up all night long. I'm reaching out, right? And it's so many times in in the ancient Hebrew way of faith, you had outward expressions that matched your inward condition. It was a much more sort of sacramental way of living out their faith in God. And so the outside matched your inside. That's why they would tear their outer garments to say, this is what it feels like on the inside. They would throw ashes on their foreheads. They would do outward things that matched inward stuff. And so here his arms are up all night long and to indicate that my heart is reaching for something. I need help, I'm dying in here, my arms are out, give me something I don't have. He's desperate, there's this outward sign of an inward reality. He's lifting his hands. Now this psalm is so real. If you don't, if you don't wake up every morning feeling like a world changer, the psalms are your best friend. These psalms explain You and the normal Christian life, they explain what it's like to struggle. On the other hand, if, this is in your notes, if you're allergic to being thought of as needy, poor, and helpless, you're not gonna like the Bible. You're you're certainly not gonna like the Psalms, but you're not, not gonna like the wider expression of God's word as well. If you happen to be the person who, for whose life is mostly going as planned, then the Psalms aren't gonna have the same payoff, the same, the same effect. They're, they actually might even seem a little bit whiny. You know, sort of like David just called up and whistled for all his angsty music major friends. You know, just a bunch of Eeyores with guitars and they hit record and poof, the Psalms. That's it, we just got all these Psalms and just whine and complain about life and everything's going wrong. No, there is good news here. There's good news for people walking through life in a world full of pain. And that is the world that we have. Suffering is real. God hears his people when we call to him. That's what we see in the Psalms. You see the Psalmist, he's crying out there. The first couple of verses, crying out by day and by night. So constantly crying out. Look at verse two. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. And then look at that word, that next phrase. I refused to be Comforted, what, what is he saying there? You might have experienced this before. I, I think that Eugene Peterson captures this so well. He, he has a paraphrased translation of this and it, he translates it this way. Here's his paraphrase. I found myself in trouble and went looking for my Lord. My life was an open wound that wouldn't heal. When friends said everything will turn out all right, I didn't believe a word they said. In other words, I refused to be comforted. It's like his soul was so, so blistered, so, so chapped, so raw that when friends came in, he's like, look, I, I don't want a hug, man, I want an answer. I, I, I don't need consolation, I need a solution. I need resolution in this matter. I refuse to be comforted. And if you came up and you said, hey, hey, think about God, think about his goodness, think about his faithfulness, he says, I am, verse three. It's exactly what I'm doing. But when I think about God, I groan. 
When I meditate, my spirit becomes weak. In other words, I'm doing all the stuff, all the things I'm supposed to do, but none of the faith exercises seem to be yielding anything. None of them seem to actually be working. You ever try to turn a screw that's stripped? Right? You could have a $400 screwdriver. It could be the best screwdriver in the world, but if it has nothing to grab, the screw won't turn. And it's almost like this is the psalmist saying, the screw won't turn. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to meditate, I'm doing everything I know how to do. I can't sleep, I can't, can't even speak. Look at verse five and six. I consider days of old, years long past. At night, I remember my music. It sounds like he's on the up and up, all right? Good things, I'm starting to remember my music. All right, I'm meditating in my heart, my spirit ponders, and then he goes right into the tank. What's he pondering about? All these questions about God. He's, in other words, he's thinking about God's grace in days past and that seems to be making things worse because the past is so different from the present and he's asking these hard questions verse 7 will the Lord reject forever never again show favor has his faithful love ceased forever is his promise at an end for all generations you can hear Job's friends wanting to chime in right about now right theology lesson time time out Hold on, let's correct your theology. Verse nine, has God forgotten to be gracious? It's sort of like a muscle that atrophies. He hasn't used it for a while and now he's forgotten how the thing actually works. He's asking these questions. Has he forgotten to be gracious in anger? Has he withheld his compassion? Verse 10, it's hard to figure out how to even translate that because it could be rendered one of two ways. So that word, my grief, could also be translated my plea or my appeal or my entreaty. Maybe your version even has that. And the word change could also be translated years. So it's hard to sort that out with any degree of certainty. But the idea, either way, the idea is clear to the psalmist. It feels like God's strength was more readily available in the past than it is now. That's what's real. That's how it feels right now in his own experience. Verse 10, so I say, this is how the Christian Standard Bible translates it, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. You think about so many places in Scripture where if God managed his word the way we manage our Facebook pages, he would edit out certain things in the Bible. Just let's not post that. Let's not put that particular picture up, right? So Peter denying Christ. Let's just kind of know uh, Paul and Barnabas, heated argument about what to do with John Mark. Let's leave that, you know, let's not argue in front of the children, right? Let's kind of leave that stuff aside. The entire book of Judges, let's kind of just edit that whole thing out. That could just be, the, the book of Judges just could be named later by faithful Israel. This is us being dumb. That could just be the name of the book of Judges. Just edit that out. Or Genesis 9, new start. Noah's fresh off the ark. Everything's, everything's there, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's a new beginning until verse 18. And if I'm God, I'm editing out what happens in verse 18 in chapter nine. I'm just saying, hey, let's just turn the camera over here. Let's get some B-roll. Let's get some, uh, some nature shots. Let's turn away from Noah until Noah is presentable. And by presentable, I mean dressed and sober, right? So let's just look over here for a little, we're editing out that kind of stuff, right? And here in Psalm 77, this is in your notes, notice God doesn't edit out the psalmist's feelings. So these questions that he asks in verse seven through nine, you could almost, if, 
Imagine God saying, yeah, I don't like his tone. Let's edit that out. I don't want people to imitate that, that sound. Look, don't mistake this. This psalm and those verses are not here to get us to think. Apparently, it's possible for God's faithful love to cease. I mean, the psalmist is entertaining that. Up till now, you know, we've been singing his mercies are new every morning, but apparently in light of verse eight, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. That's, that's not why this is in the Bible. These verses aren't the expressions of, of a, a hardened skeptic. The true skeptic says, see ya. He stops talking. He doesn't carry his burdens and his prayers and his doubts and his mess before God. He says, I stopped talking to the walls years ago. That's the true hardened skeptic. The beauty of why these verses are here is is we see that God allows us. He allows the psalmist to express what he feels. It's Psalm 77. These verses are not the seminary exam. This is the believer trying to breathe. And God allows him to process his pain in his presence. The the fight of faith involves discerning the difference between our feelings and the truth. So often there can be a difference between what we feel and what is real. But God allows the psalmist to bring what he feels into his presence. These, These verses aren't encouraging us to fall in love with our doubts. It's sort of the postmodern spirit of I never met a suspicion about God that I didn't love. That's not what this psalm is about, to confirm our worst suspicions about the character of God. No, what we're supposed to hear God saying to his people in this verse is, bring all your mess to me. Bring it all here. I can handle all that. Don't pre-sort it, bring it. Come to me with all of that. I want you to cast all your cares. Again, don't pre-sort them. Send me all the cleanest ones. Cast all your burdens, all your anxieties. This passage is saying to us, and we, some of us need to hear this, it's so liberating, you don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be strong You don't have to keep your chin up and your chest out. You don't have to see your cape flapping in the wind. You don't have to be awesome spiritually. It's God talking to us in Psalm 77, calling us away from sort of glossy brochure, plastic Christianity. It's not real. He said, just come and fall into my arms. That's what you get to do today. Fall right here. J.I. Packer once said, God can preserve our faith when we only seem to have a needle of truth in a haystack of error. And what's the needle of truth the psalmist has right now? The needle is, I'm gonna bring whatever this is to him and he's gonna hear me. The nature of our relationship with God boils down to this. We get to be weak and two, He gets to be strong. He gets to be strong. Verse 11. I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember. I love that. Yes, I will. (laughs) Remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. God, and here he goes, your way is holy. 
what God is great like God. You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. He's remembering the power and saving mercy of God in real history. It's real to him and he's remembering this. This showed up on planet earth. Real grace showed up and he's reminding himself of that truth. You know, when our kids were little, uh, we started to spend as, as our family worship time, when we very first started family worship, we would spend a brief time reading like a verse or small passage or paragraph in the Bible. And then we would spend a little bit of time praying and then we would review and go through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a document that was created for helping new believers who weren't very familiar with the Bible, helping them familiarize themselves with the big ideas and teachings of the scriptures. It was created back in the 1640s by a number of theologians and pastors. And so we would review these little memorable questions and answers. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we'd talk a little bit about that and then we'd go to bed. And so that was something that we did. A few years later, I was in a, a car headed to a conference with a minister and he was going on and on and on about the Heidelberg Catechism being better than the Westminster. And I couldn't let the Westminster go down like that. So we, so we had a, just a fun banter conversation back and forth. Problem is, I couldn't really banter because I'd never read the Heidelberg. <laughs> so he had read both, uh, which was a problem in that moment. And so what I went and ended up doing when I got back to the hotel room that night for the conference is the first thing I did was open my computer and pull up the Heidelberg Catechism and read it. And the very first question of the Heidelberg goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And I thought, okay, it's a tie. Because um, there are worse ways to start out giving biblical faith to the next generation, giving the, the main ideas of the Bible to new believers. I'm not my own, I'm his. He's got me, he's bought me, he's saved me, he'll keep me all the way to the end. Maybe you sang the song, little ones to him belong, to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. That, that is the nature of our relationship with God. We get to be weak, he gets to be strong. The Christian life is conversation with God. The Christian life is conversation with God. And so you see that here in Psalm 77. It's a tutorial of that. He starts, he's unburdening his soul before his God. He is casting his cares. He's saying, let me show you how it's done. And he's casting his cares. And then by grace, his soul finds another gear in the end of this passage. And he starts remembering. He starts reflecting. He starts meditating. And it all hinges on verse 11 and 12. 
In other words, before verse 11 and 12, you hear all these eyes, I cry aloud, I refuse to be comforted. When I think of God, I groan, I'm so troubled, I can't speak. And then he says, I will remember. There's a key difference between I might remember, I'll try to remember, and I will remember. And that's the accent. I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will. (laughs) Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect. I'm going to meditate, remember, and reflect. That's what I'm going to do. This is, look, this is not, by the way, the psalmist finding his bootstraps. Finally, okay, that's where they were. I couldn't, and, and now he's picking himself up by his bootstraps. No, this is, this is spirit-empowered faith that keeps talking to God, that just keeps speaking, talking about God's strength and grace, preaching the gospel to ourselves about his saving power in real history. Verse 16, the waters saw you and trembled. It's the greatest story in the Old Testament. He's reminding himself, remember that? It really happened. You can find that water, the Red Sea, it's still there. It's a reference to the Exodus. The water saw you where, where God brought his people up to the shores of the Red Sea and the sea got out of the way. The sea curled up and moved out of the way. You play chicken with the sea in the ancient world, you always lose. God plays chicken with the sea, the sea loses. The sea moves up and out, gets out of the way, and he marches his people on dry land. That's what he's referring to. That's my God, that's the one who's listening to me. And you listen to this new sound. In the end of this chapter, the eyes of honest complaint, because that's where they were, honest complaint, but they're replaced with these yous and yours of Godward trust. You see verse 13, your way is holy. Verse 14, you're the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength. You redeemed your people. What's he doing? He's believing. He's fighting the fight of faith. That's what he's doing. He's preaching truth. He's fighting for joy. He's not doing this in his own strength. There is no boasting in the second half of this chapter. There is no chest thumping going on in this chapter. His eyes are up and out. You, 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 you dominate in all directions. Come get me. That's what he's saying. You know, in a sense, we might have expected verse four to be the last verse in this psalm. I am troubled and cannot speak, but his lips keep moving. (laughs) I consider days of old, years long past. At night I remember my music, I meditate in my heart. Right, we we hear him say, I'm so troubled I can't speak, but in a way, the more you read, it's more like he can't seem to shut up. Is it that you can't speak, or is it that you can't stop speaking? Because you keep talking, you keep speaking about all of it in the presence of God. You must think he's real. Is your Christianity real? As real as your pain. Day and night he's calling on the God who hears his cries. Look, let's just be clear. None of this happens apart from Jesus. So we know as the arrow flies, the great one big story of the Bible, that 
that fallen, sinful people don't know an experience of God's grace and mercy apart from the mediator that he sent to make that possible so that we could be reconciled to a holy God and his throne is converted to a throne of grace and we get to go to it and obtain mercy and buckets of help. What converts it into a throne of grace and not a throne of judgment is the cross. So God sends his son into the world to die in your place as a substitute for your sin and my sin and then he rises again on the third day and he offers new life, reconciliation, family identity to everybody who believes in Jesus. And then the throne of grace is yours. The father says, "Come, come get some. Come get the help. Come obtain mercy that you need for today. Even see in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus comes on the scene and you see him making invisible things pop, right? Making things real that were not seen by the human eye. So in Mark chapter nine, for example, there's a boy who's possessed by evil spirits and they're just throwing him around. They're having a heyday with him. Throw, let's throw him into the fire. Let's throw him into the water. Oh, he can't, let, let's shut his mouth so he can't speak for years. Let's just, they're just having a heyday undoing his humanity. And Jesus walks up and he says, how long has this been happening? What a start to a conversation. How long has this been happening? And the father says, this, this evil thing is trying to destroy my son. And he says this, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And I love what the man says in response. I do believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> I, I'm so troubled I can't speak, and yet you can't seem to shut up, right? This contrast, this, this tension. I, there's no way that's possible. Please do it. <laughs> please, please show mercy. Please save my boy. How, how real is your Christianity? Does it express itself in ways that you actually run to God with your pain, with your trials, as if he's really there? really can be trusted, stronger than whatever you're up against? Is, is there that kind of reality in our walk with Christ? Where we come to seek the Lord's strength and Jesus walks right up to us. As Dallas Willard said to that young graduate student, he walks right up to you and he listens.